This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk From October to Brest-Litovsk by Leon Trotsky Chapter 7 The Democratic Conference The Democratic Conference called by Seratelli and his fellow combatants in mid-September was totally artificial in character, representing as it did a combination of Soviets and organs of self-government in a ratio calculated to secure a preponderance of the fusionist parties. Born of helplessness and confusion, the conference ended in a pitiful fiasco. The professional bourgeoisie treated the conference with the greatest hostility, beholding in it an endeavor to push the bourgeoisie away from the positions it had approached at the Moscow conference. The revolutionary proletariat and the masses of soldiers and peasants connected with it condemned in advance the fraudulent method of calling together the democratic conference. The immediate task of the fusionists was to create a responsible ministry, but even this was not achieved. Kerensky neither wanted nor permitted responsibility, because this was not permitted by the bourgeoisie, which was backing him. Irresponsibility towards the organs of the so-called democracy meant, in fact, responsibility to the cadets and the allied embassies. For the time being, this was sufficient for the bourgeoisie. On the question of coalition, the Democratic Conference revealed its utter insolvency. The votes in favour of a coalition with the bourgeoisie slightly outnumbered those against the coalition. The majority voted against a coalition with the cadets. But with the cadets left out, there proved to be, among the bourgeoisie, no serious counter-agencies for the coalition. Seratelli explained this in detail to the conference. If the conference did not grasp it, so much the worse for the conference. Behind the backs of the conference, negotiations were carried on without concealment with the cadets, whom they had repudiated, and it was decided that the cadets should not appear as cadets, but as social workers. Pressed hard on both right and left, the bourgeois democracy tolerated all this dickering and thereby demonstrated its utter political prostration. From the Democratic Conference, a Soviet was picked, and it was decided to complete it by adding representatives of the professional elements. This pre-Parliament was to fill the vacant period before the convocation of the Constituent Assembly, contrary to Seratelli's original plan, but in full accord with the plans of the bourgeoisie. The new coalition ministry retained its formal independence with regard to the pre-Parliament. Everything together produced the impression of a pitiful and impotent creation of an office clerk behind which was concealed the complete capitulation of the petty bourgeois democracy before the professional liberalism, which, a month previously, had openly supported Kornilov's attack on the revolution. The sum total of the whole affair was, therefore, the restoration and perpetuation of the coalition with the liberal bourgeoisie. No longer could there be any doubt that quite independently of the make-up of the future constituent assembly, the governmental power would, in fact, be held by the bourgeoisie, 
as despite all the preponderance given them by the masses of the people, the fusionist parties invariably arrived at a coalition with the cadets, deeming it impossible, as they did, to create a state power without the bourgeoisie. The attitude of the masses towards Milyukov's party was one of the deepest hostilities. At all elections during the revolutionary period, the cadets suffered merciless defeat, and yet the very parties, i.e. the social revolutionists and Mensheviks, which victoriously defeated the cadet party at the elections, after election gave it the place of honor in the coalition government. It is natural that the masses realized more and more that in reality the fusionist parties were playing the role of stewards to the liberal bourgeoisie. Meantime, the internal situation was becoming more and more complicated and unfavorable. The war dragged on aimlessly, senselessly and interminably. The government took no steps whatever to extricate itself from the vicious circle. The laughable scheme was proposed of sending the Menshevik Skobolov to Paris to influence the Allied imperialists, but no sane man attached any importance to this scheme. Kornilov gave up Riga to the Germans in order to terrorize public opinion, and having brought about this condition, to establish the discipline of the knout in the army. Danger threatened Petrograd, and the bourgeois elements greeted this peril with unconcealed malicious joy. The former president of the Duma, Rodzyanko, openly said again and again that the surrender of debauched Petrograd to the Germans would not be a great misfortune. For illustration, he cited Riga, where the deputy Soviets had been done away with after the coming of the Germans, and firm order, together with the old police system, had been established. Would the Baltic fleet be lost? but the fleet had been debauched by the revolutionary propaganda. Ergo, the loss was not so great. The cynicism of a garrulous nobleman expressed the hidden thoughts of the greater part of the bourgeoisie, that to surrender Petrograd to the Germans did not meant to lose it. Under the peace treaty it would be restored, but restored ravaged by German militarism. By that time the revolution would be decapitated, and it would be easier to manage. Kerensky's government did not think of seriously defeating the capital. On the contrary, public opinion was being prepared for its possible surrender. Public institutions were being removed from Petrograd to Moscow and other cities. In this setting, the soldiers' section of the Petrograd Soviet had its meeting. Feeling was tense and turbulent. Was the government incapable of defending Petrograd? If so, let it make peace and if incapable of making peace, let it clear out. The frame of mind of the soldiers' section found expression in this resolution. This was already the heat-lightning of the October Revolution. At the front, the situation grew worse day by day. Chilly autumn, with its rains and winds, was drawing nigh, and there was looming up a fourth winter campaign. Supplies deteriorated every day. In the rear, the front had been forgotten, no reliefs, no new contingents, no warm winter clothing, which was indispensable. Desertions grew in number. The old army committees, elected in the first period of the revolution, remained at their places and supported Kerensky's policy. Re-elections were forbidden. An abyss sprang up between the committees and the soldier masses. Finally, the soldiers began to regard the committees with hatred. 
With increasing frequency, delegates from the trenches were arriving in Petrograd and at the sessions of the Petrograd Soviet put the question point blank. What is to be done further? By whom and how will the war be ended? Why is the Petrograd Soviet silent? End of chapter 7